There's at least a few more things to say after the cross of Christ. And, and here's a section that is entitled, Come and Eat. And it's actually based on an event that happens after Jesus' resurrection. What happened at the cross? He, he became our priest, our true father, our husband. And, and here's something incredibly intimate. This is this is this is perhaps one of my favorite chapters, and and once again, I, I really look forward to to reading this to you. Eating together still means something. Share a meal with a neighbor, and your relationship changes. It's warmer. It's more familial. I remember a woman from our church who struggled mightily with depression, but something about her was different. One day, she seemed more relaxed. Her face looked alive. Now, why was the question? She said, a family has been inviting me for a meal on Sunday afternoon. After all the help and encouragement she'd received from so many other, other people, isn't it typical, the kingdom of heaven, that God used something ordinary like a weekly meal to bless her? In this era of fast food, we still know that a leisurely meal with good conversation is about as good as it gets. Well, if a meal means something now, how much more important it must have been in the agricultural economies of the Bible? In those days, everyone was in sync with the rhythm of planting and harvest. A drought and poor yield were a cause for anxiety. A good crop was time for celebration. Now, to this meal-conscious culture, add complex food regulations that would separate who the clean people were and who the unclean people were, who the unclean, and, and also what clean foods there were and unclean foods. As a Jew, you had to be very aware of who you were eating with, who you were inviting for dinner. New Testament meals were loaded with meaning, even more than our own. But, but, but then and now, a meal said, welcome. We want you to feel like one of the family. When, when people are asked which historical figure they would invite for dinner, Jesus usually makes the list, and he's probably the only person on the list who would accept the invitation. There are many stories of people eating and drinking in the presence of the Lord. This particular story in John 21 is an epilogue. It could be that the Apostle John thought he'd finished his gospel and decided later to add the story. Like most epilogues, it's carefully chosen. It took some past events, updated them, and tied up all kinds of loose ends. Jesus was inviting people to breakfast. Prior to this breakfast, Jesus, of course, had been raised from the dead and appeared to his disciples at least twice. On this occasion, Peter and some of the disciples had been fishing through the night, and Jesus was making them breakfast. It's hard to understand why the disciples would spend time fishing while the universe was getting a new king, but Jesus offered no rebukes. If you joined the story at this point, the beach scene would seem ordinary, except for an odd conversation in which Jesus repeats himself three times. But if you're an insider, you would quickly recognize that Jesus was remembering, even reenacting, Three different events for the disciples. His intent was to fill those past events with more meaning and thereby complete them. Well, the first event Jesus reenacts on the beach was an earlier fishing episode. It took place in the same lake, maybe at the same time early in Jesus' public ministry. He had been teaching a large crowd by the water's edge when he noticed that Simon's boat was empty. This is Luke chapter 5. At Jesus' command, Simon cast off with, the, with Jesus on board and set the net in the same place one more time. Soon the net was bursting at the seams with fish. Jesus' point? 
From now on, he said, you will be catching men. Well, that was the last time Peter and the others had fished, until now. Now, as Jesus appeared on the beach after his resurrection, he was going to make the same point in the same way. One reason Peter was out fishing was he had nothing else to do. The Holy Spirit had not yet been given. But more important, Peter, at least in his own mind, was persona non grata, unwelcome, ashamed because he had blatantly denied Jesus three times. He had to be thinking there would be no fourth chance. The connection with Peter's initial call to be a disciple couldn't be clearer. A long night of fishing, no catch, a request to try again, a boat overloaded with fish, then finally someone recognizes Jesus for who he really is. What was the punchline? Catch men, Peter, not fish. The message was incongruous in the first story. In other words, poor, uneducated fishermen becoming the Messiah's disciples. It was unclear, but, but it seems even more so. The poor, uneducated fishermen, fresh off three denials, being commissioned by the victorious king. But when you understand this king and this kingdom, it makes perfect sense. The king prefers his ambassadors weak and needy. The shamed are his people. Do you feel like you don't belong, like you blew it beyond belief? Then you get the job. The outrageous nature of this calling is what makes it so believable. No one could make up such a story. We might be able to imagine Jesus reluctantly accepting Peter, but only after Peter did a few years of penance at the bottom of the kingdom's corporate ladder. No one could imagine full acceptance coupled with a most honorable mission. The simple fact that no one could imagine this indicates that this truly is a divine story. So the first thing that Jesus does is he reenacts the old fishing event and calls and, and, and reappoints Peter to his task. But there are a couple other things that he wants to call to Peter's attention. The second event Jesus has in mind is it's only echoed here. When Peter denied Jesus, he did it around the charcoal fire in John 18. When Jesus was on the beach, he prepared the fish on a charcoal fire, the same Greek word. Well, smell is a curious sense. It's hard to evoke smells from memory. We can remember and imagine past scenes and past sounds, but it's hard to arouse an old aroma. It's hard, that is, until we actually re-smell it. Then our memory comes alive. It drags us into the past where the smell and the people or places attached to it remain in rich detail. There's no reason to think that Jesus was trying to evoke the night of denials. Peter doesn't need any help with that. More likely, Jesus was offering Peter a new memory for the smell of charcoal. From this moment on, whenever the fires were being lit, Peter would remember the fire at the beach and the welcome of the risen Jesus. Our God is the God of fourth chances and hundredth chances. Loose ends are being tied up. How are you doing? Don't, don't forget, John in particular invites you to enter into the story. So watch Peter and Jesus, but then, then take Peter's place in this. The third event Jesus references in this, this meal on the beach is the feeding of the 5,000. Fish and bread were provided then. Fish and bread are provided now. In fact, Jesus uses a specific word for fish that is only used in one other place, and that is the feeding of of the 5,000. Now, the feeding of the 5,000, as you probably know, is one of the most significant miracles that Jesus does. 
And when he begins to interpret the miracle, it is, it is very disruptive for people. He talks about himself ultimately as the bread of life. The feeding of the 5,000, the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes was simply a symbol pointing to, to how he is the bread of life and people are to feed on his flesh and drink his blood, which was a, a very difficult saying at the time. But but that is the saying that stands behind the Lord's Supper. In a sense, we participate with Christ. It's very, very intimate. We are associated with him in his death and in his resurrection. So in his death, our shame is, is put to death. So what we have here at a beach scene is, is a simple meal. But it's a meal that invokes the loaves and fishes of the feeding of the 5,000. It invokes that hard saying. And essentially what we have here is, is not just a meal, but it's, it's the inauguration, if you will, of the Lord's Supper. Jesus is inviting Peter to, to a very, very unique and intimate meal. Now, maybe one other feature to this story that... That again, try to see yourself in this. Don't just watch Peter. Be Peter in this one. Now, after this breakfast, Jesus took Peter aside, probably for a walk on the shore. You know, Peter had seen Jesus at least once since he had risen, but we have no record of any private conversation. So this had to be a little bit awkward for him. The scene was heavy with the overtones of Eden and God walking through the garden. The difference was now that Peter knew enough about Jesus that he couldn't hide. There aren't good hiding places on a shoreline anyway. And Jesus says this, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then he says, feed my lambs. Well, so far the conversation was going well, considering the alternatives, but Peter didn't quite get it. Jesus then initiated the same exchange. Then he initiated it again. Who knows when Peter finally understood what was being reenacted, but the cadence is unmistakable. We don't know if Peter grasped how Jesus' threefold commission went head to head with Peter's threefold denial, but Peter must have had some reaction to Jesus' cadence. At that time, anything associated with number three had to evoke a visceral response. But Peter's fears had already been assuaged by the invitation to breakfast. Jesus always says, I love you, first. We always respond to his initiative. On the beach, the initiative was, and this is, an, this is his initiative to you, come and eat breakfast. It was an invitation to fellowship. It was an invitation to peace and shalom with Peter and with you, all was well. Do you love me is the same as saying, do you believe in me? But it's more personal. For the Apostle John, who was there on the beach that day, the theme of love soon dominated his thinking. Do you love me? It's a perfect question. You can have a detached intellectual response. Do you love me? By the third time Jesus asked the question, he is asking it of you. There is absolutely no shame powerful enough to bar you from Jesus' breakfast. If Peter wasn't excluded, you aren't either. But you have to answer the question. 
Jesus has already said, I love you. Perhaps you've never responded before, out loud anyway. Think about it. Do you love him? Don't let the question fade. Respond. Do something. Jesus says to you in your shame, he loves you. He invites you to feed his sheep. He gives you this authority in his kingdom. And he asks, do you love me? Simply say, yes, Lord, I love you. Can you give reasons why you love him? Yes, it does sound like a marriage ceremony. I do, or I love you, is how we become associated with the honor and holiness of Jesus. Up to this point, Peter has just been going through the motions. Someone on the outs has no purpose. He went fishing when he should have been busting at the seams with good news. But he then was invited to breakfast. What more could anyone want? He is invited by the person he disgraced, and he was invited to love the person he disgraced, because Jesus already loved him first. This goes beyond forgiveness. It goes all the way to honor. Jesus is asking Peter to be faithful to him. Then Jesus, the good shepherd, entrusts Peter with the honor of being an under-shepherd, if you will. Peter is given a mission, and it couldn't have been more important. From shame to acceptance. And then from acceptance, even to a commissioning, that's the way of the kingdom. We are in the Gospel of John, and John likes to bring you into the story. When you share a meal with someone, especially when that person is treating, your relationship has changed. Jesus says to you, come and have breakfast. Any reluctance? If so, think again. Because <laughs> he'll come back and ask you again. Come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast.